Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 71, 71 of the podcast, so we're not uh, not a new podcast anymore, but for those of you out there who are first-time listeners, uh, uh, basically what we do on the podcast is uh, I invite an author, author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers, uh, you go out and purchase the book for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And uh, my guest today is Mr. Matthew Hennessy. And Matt Hennessy is the Wall Street Journal's deputy op-ed editor, and before that he was City Journal associate editor from 2013 to 2017, and he was, before that, managing editor of research publications at the Manhattan Institute and a staff writer at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. His essays and op-eds have appeared in places like the New York Post, the New York Daily News, the Hartford Courant, Hartford Courant, excuse me. Uh, the Dallas Morning News, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, National Review, First Things, Time, among others. And he is the author of, of Zero Hour for Gen X, How the Last Adult Generation Can Save America from Millennials. <laughs> and lastly, the author of Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market, uh, which was published in April by Encounter Books and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Hennessy, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's nice to have a... Uh, uh, someone from the neighborhood on the podcast. Um, are, are we from the same neighborhood? Uh, sort of, yeah. I was born in Glen Ridge, and then uh, I, I grew up in uh, down the shore in Bradley Beach. So uh, I right. consider pretty much anybody from North or Central Jersey uh, from the neighborhood. <laughs> we should probably uh, we should probably announce our names every time we uh, every time we speak, in case people start thinking we're the same person, so we have the same accent. Yeah, but thank you for that uh, that introduction. It's nice to hear your uh, resume read back to you every once in a while. Oh yeah, no problem. To realize how old you're getting and how long. Uh, yeah, yeah. How how, how uh, you know a lot of, some of those <laughs> publications that you mentioned are not even uh, alive anymore. Thing. Uh, yeah, I know. But yeah. you know, other people have heard of them who are you know. Uh, True, and that's the point. The tooth, so uh, anyway, uh, speaking of Jersey, this. Just totally off topic, but did you ever take? Remember when the the Times had that like uh, it was like a dialect quiz, like you could like go and answer it and like how you pronounce certain words and how you, um, mm-hmm. you say certain words and whatever. Uh, so it was this long quiz, and then at the end of it, it basically pinpointed where um, where you were born and where you grew up, <laughs> and it is shockingly. Uh, shockingly accurate. Like it. it oh, it, 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 I thought what you were. I thought you were going to tell me that it it had a, a blindness uh, to to the Jersey accent, no, of no, which no. there is more. No, it was basically like you were born somewhere in between. Like when I did it, it was like you were born somewhere in between like Newark, Elizabeth, and Patterson. Oh wow! Uh, which is like my God. That's, and that's uh, and I gave it to like other people from like different parts of the country. It was like, see if this like works for you. And they were like. Yep, it's like like people right. in Florida, like people on the West Coast. It was like crazy. Well, uh, just, one of one of my least favorite things when I'm listening to a podcast is someone to say, "Well, this is actually a subject for another podcast." Although this really is a subject for another <laughs> podcast because I have I have a lot of thoughts on on accents in general, but mm-hmm. on New Jersey accents and New York accents specifically. Uh, the New Jersey accent is a, is is the most 
uh, misrepresented accent in American culture. Um, oh, no one knows what it sounds like, and fewer people can can reproduce it. Uh, the only, you know, we don't even need to talk uh, further than this. Uh, this one example, uh, which everyone in your audience will know, which is The Sopranos, which is <laughs> supposed to take place in. Uh, Livingston, just somewhere in 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 a northern New Jersey suburb of New York City, but everybody yeah. talks like they're from uh, Bay Ridge, you know. Uh, <laughs> and if there was any if there was any place where they were going to get it right, it would be it would be The Sopranos, and they 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 they, they absolutely failed. Even even um, Stephen Van Zant, the guy from the E Street Band, uh, from Bruce yeah, Springsteen, Silvio band, Dante, in, uh, Silvio Dante. Yeah. I mean, he even he was doing a big Brooklyn kind of thing, and he ought to know better. So yeah, but, well, uh, I mean. You know, when they did the Pinelands, uh, the Pine Barrens episode, and uh, it was obviously, if you've ever been down to the, the Pine Barrens where they filmed that, was obviously not the Pine Barrens. But, uh, uh, yeah, what, like the Redwood Forest or something, right? I don't yeah, know. I've never like, been inside the Pine Barrens, i got to be honest with you. So a couple of things about New Jersey, and then we'll get onto mm, the subject yeah, of economics. Sure. <laughs> uh, nobody in New Jersey uh, knows... So we're both from northern New Jersey, and this is my right. hypothesis about people from northern New Jersey is that they don't know anything to the west of the town where they grew up. So if you grew <laughs> up where I did in Morristown, I don't really have any idea what's going on between Morristown, which is in the very center of northern New Jersey, and the Delaware Water Gap. I really don't have it. It's all forest to me. You know, and seriously, I've I've, I was just going to say, I don't think I've been anywhere west of like – yeah. I've been all over the world. I don't think I've been anywhere west of like Stanhope, you know, yeah. I mean, like in that corner of Jersey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stanhope uh, is west of Morristown. But, yeah. uh, you know, if you're from Bergen County or if you're from Jersey City or if you're from any of those cities that you just mentioned, those people don't have any idea what's going on in Morristown. It's behind them. It, they consider it the, you know, uh, flyover country. Every Everything in northern New Jersey is oriented towards New York. And then anything that's happening in southern Jersey, I, I don't have I don't have a clue. It's one of the smallest states in the nation. Yeah. And I don't have an, any idea what's going on down there. So are you one of those people? See, there are certain people I, I we're spending all this time talking about Jersey. We'll end this quick. But, um, there are certain people who insist that there is no such thing as like people from central Jersey say they're from central Jersey. But then like people from like North Jersey just say like, no, there is no central Jersey. Like once you get once you get south of the Raritan River, it's all South Jersey. Are you one of those? No, uh, I believe in I believe in Central New Jersey. Um, there's something going on between like Route 78 mm -hmm. and uh, the the Princeton campus that <laughs> I don't really understand, or I you know I haven't I just I would get lost, and it's probably I could probably hit it with a baseball from my you know standing on the roof of my high school, and I really have no idea what's going on there. So I there's definitely a Central Jersey. Yeah. It's somewhere somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere in that borderland, uh, uh, you 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 cross the Taylor Ham pork roll. Um, You're a Taylor Ham guy, right? Yeah, yeah I'm a Taylor Ham okay, guy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so you know, there's it's a different culture, and it's very. So this this gets back to the question of the accent because the accent is like a weird mix of New York, Philadelphia, and California. There's a very round kind of mm -hmm. uh, New Jersey vowel sound that almost sounds like like if you heard John Bon Jovi talking, he's got like a, he's got like a valley guy kind of um, shape to his vowels, and nobody can do this. No, no, I've never heard an actor who didn't who didn't already speak that way, who didn't already just sort of naturally um, have that accent, uh, do it in a movie or on a TV show or do it well. Yeah, One of those uh, things you can only you only recognize it when you hear it. Uh, it's very very hard to imitate. 
Yeah, John Bon Jovi from Sayreville, New Jersey, which is about six feet from uh, Staten Island, New York. So. True. Uh, and so, one other thing I'm going to blow your listeners' minds, which people don't it. really realize, is that Jack Nicholson is from New Jersey. He's from Asbury Park, yeah, which is the... not that far from where Bruce Springsteen is from. And the two of them kind of talk a little bit the same. It's yeah, hilarious. That's, uh, you know? that's actually my neck of the woods. I'm from Bradley Beach, which is literally right if you don't count Ocean Grove is like a town, which I really don't. Then, I mean, Bradley Beach is like the town All right, directly south of Asbury Park. Very hyper local podcast, but you yeah. might want to edit this, but you do whatever you got to do. <laughs> yeah, but, but just <laughs> to that point, like, to, of like West, like Northwest Jersey, like, if you would have told me that, like, Area 51 is there, like, I would have been like, yeah, probably. I mean, you know, I don't know what Yeah, the but there's is. something very similar to Area 51 there, which is the Picatinny Arsenal, which you're not mm. allowed to go on, which is, right. uh, there's some unusual things happening in that, in, uh, in that uh, in that vicinity <laughs> of that place. Yeah. All right. All right. Enough. Uh, enough Jersey nonsense. Um, anyway, so the book Visible Hand. Um, what was the genesis of it? What made you What made you want to write this book? Well, the genesis of it was some Jersey nonsense because <laughs> I grew up in a in a in a in a in a kind of a case study of small business success. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, on my family's history with the benefit of like a couple of decades, I can see now what I never was able to see then, which is that my parents uh, spent about half their lives working for the government, working for, you know, school systems. Um, and my father worked for the county uh, for about a decade running a youth shelter. And um, they never could really get ahead in the world. Um, they never really made that much money. I think they were pretty happy. I mean, we had a very happy home, but I'm sure that, you know, they struggled to make ends meet. I got uh, three brothers and sisters. Um, we were getting to be teenagers and my oldest daughter was getting, uh, my oldest sister was getting ready to go to college. I have a daughter who's getting ready to go to college now, so I said a slip. Uh, and my dad lost his job and um, kind of, uh, without spending too much time thinking about it, switched lanes and bought a business. He bought a small bar in the town where I was from. And it totally changed his life. It totally changed the family's life, the, the, the whole trajectory of our family, uh, um, shifted into a new gear when my parents became their own boss. So I had a kind of a front row seat to something like the American dream, this kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the entrepreneurial spirit where you sort of like, you know, um, pick yourself up by your bootstraps if, if you can handle that kind of talk and um, and uh, make an economic success of your life. Um, so that forms a big part of the book, the story of how my parents did that and, how, and, and the lessons that I've learned from it or that I've gleaned from it over the course of the years. But the other reason was that uh, was related, which is that my parents were not terribly uh, economically minded people, despite their small business success. Um, we never talked about the um, the workings of the market in our house. My parents were sort of book lovers and uh, uh, lovers of the arts and lovers of debate and politics and the New York Times on the kitchen table and stuff. Um, I did not grow up in the kind of home where you are encouraged to pursue a um, sensible career or, you know, <laughs> think about, you know, maybe what are you going to do, you know, studying something like engineering or accounting or finance in college so that you can get a good job. That wasn't really the house I grew up in. Uh, so I kept this word 
um, economics really at arm's length through most of my life. Uh, for the first part of my life, I tried to avoid it. Anytime anybody was talking about anything related to stocks or uh, oil prices or interest rates or whatever, I I I, I really shut down and uh, and ran the other direction. And I think there's a lot of people like that in the world. I know there's a lot of people like that in I think the world. And most I'm still people are much, probably like that. They might be. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have met a few people who are wired in exactly the opposite direction. Um, I'm thinking of a guy that I went to high school with uh, and who kept the front page of the New York Times from the day of the stock market crash in 1987, like wrapped in plastic and tucked <laughs> under his bed. And I, I remember thinking to myself, what? Why? Why would you why would you want to keep that? He thought it was a very important artifact of history that he wanted to hold on to that would be valuable one day. And I couldn't compute it. It didn't mean anything to me. It, it meant less than nothing to me. I thought it was all hocus pocus. Um, I thought the economy was a rigged game that uh, that was designed to let the rich get rich and the poor get poor. And um, nothing could ever change it. So you might as well, you know, uh, start a band or uh, a podcast or something and, <laughs> and uh, pour yourself another glass of Diet Coke. Uh, so I wrote this book for people like me or like I used to be who kept this um, the, all this business um, at a distance from their from the center of their lives for reasons that are entirely understandable, because the word, you know, the world of economics very much has the. Um, has you know it's a uh, it sounds like it sounds like math it sounds like homework to a lot of people and mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way in fact i think that it's uh it shouldn't be that way i think that uh um the way i've tried to approach it in this book is to demystify a few things to humanize a few things to tell a few jokes and make the 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 world of the market and the laws of economics except you know the kind of thing that a teenager could right. could easily digest so that was the reason why i wrote the book and hopefully it succeeds on those terms cool all right so why the uh why the title visible hand how why what what made you settle on that title well, the very the most uh, recognizable metaphor in all of economics is the invisible hand mm -hmm. of uh, Adam Smith, um, Scottish uh, philosopher, perhaps the first economist. Well, I mean, you know, thought of as the sort of uh, the the modern purveyor of market economics. Mm -hmm. In his book, The Wealth of Nations, he mentions this notion of the invisible hand uh, of the marketplace, um, coordinating commercial activities uh, and um, sort of nudging uh, the parties of uh, transactions, parties to transactions toward a kind of uh, beneficial equilibrium. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's been interpreted throughout the years as a uh, an, uh, as a sort of uh, a method of understanding how um, um, individual the pursuit of individual economic benefit can can redound to the benefit of society as a whole. And people sort of sort of have a vague notion of this, even if they don't have any. Uh, real understanding or any training in economics. Um, the the twist I wanted to put on it, and I understand that there are some people who contrast the invisible hand of the marketplace to what they call the visible hand of government. Um, that's not really what I'm trying to do here. The visible hand that I'm referring to has 
has more to do with um, this idea that I was setting up in the in my answer to the first question, which right. is that there are some things that you kind of keep out of your field of vision on purpose. Uh, you just don't want to see them or deal with them. But then someone will sort of clue you into it. You you you, you get hip to a a particular theme uh, in literature or in uh, in the arts or in food, a particular ingredient, then you suddenly sort of key on it and you and you start tasting it everywhere. You start um, noticing it and commenting on it and it's, it becomes your thing. So uh, that was the kind of the trip I was on here with Visible Hand, which is that for the kind of person who can't handle economics, who, who is frightened of it or is uh, um, wants to stay away from it, once you read my book, you're going to start seeing this stuff everywhere and you're going to actually um, I won't you know, I won't promise that you're going to love it, but you won't you won't hate it. Yeah. As you point out in the book, too, and this is something I didn't even realize as someone who has read uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, he only uses the uh, the term invisible hand once throughout the entire book. And the book is, I don't know, something like six or seven hundred pages uh in length and it's funny how <laughs> just that one phrase uh you know from from that many words uh in a text has become a shorthand for um you know the the uh, the, <laughs> the working of the market yeah i think that um saying that you've read the wealth of nations is what the kids call a weird flex yeah. It's not six or seven hundred pages. It's six million pages. It's a really intimidating, gigantic book filled with uh, words strung together in ways that we don't do it any like like we don't do anymore. Um, I have been informed by scholars of Adam Smith and um, generous reviewers of the book that while he only mentions the term the invisible hand once in the wealth of nations he did he did refer to it elsewhere in his writings um from time to time so uh you know he may have he he you know i make a big deal about how it was only mentioned once in the book and how like you said it's kind of funny that it's become the one thing that everybody knows about market economics evidently uh if you are uh you know if you've read a little more widely than 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 Hennessy, you you would know that uh, he he himself Smith himself was was in part responsible for how how for the idea of the invisible hand catching on because he he mentioned it and he talked about it elsewhere. All right, uh, well, away from Adam Smith, um, but uh, you met you your pains to mention early on in the book uh, that you are not. An economist. Uh, so, wouldn't people ask why you should be writing uh, this book on economics and the market if you're not an economist? Uh, defend, defend the writing on uh, on economics by uh, non-specialists, by non-economic or non-economists. Well, I'm not trying to be a wise guy, but that's uh, you know the the economists have really made a hatch out of it. Uh, part of the reason why people <laughs> stay away from this stuff is because it's it's been complexified to the yeah it makes your the, eyes bleed point of being, it makes your eyes bleed and people don't want to hear it um i i consider myself a pretty well educated guy uh you know i went to college stuff like that but i you know there are some um there are some economics programs on tv 
I'm thinking of one in particular on the radio that I hear from time to time. That's it's like it might as well be in Swahili. I mean, you, you, who, who is this stuff for? There's three or four uh, really uh, sophisticated financial professionals who can follow um, the conversation on some of these networks um, uh, when they're purporting to talk about the economy. Oftentimes, they're talking about you know particular investments which may have that, that may have an audience and, and there may be a market for it. But uh, to confuse the financial economy with with economics is kind of like uh, one of the big problems. So right. I'm a journalist. I work with words for a living. Um, I know just enough economics to be dangerous. I'm not in danger. You know, I'm, nobody's going to give me a Nobel Prize for this book. Um, I, you know, but so far, nobody's uh, sort of. Uh, taken my card away either. I mean, uh, I, I think that um, the problem with so much academic economics is inaccessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I work on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, so I edit a lot of economists who are trying to write for a popular audience. And, you know, those are not skills that, that go together uh, <laughs> that frequently in the uh, in the in the in the publishing business. So I, I thought I would approach it from the other direction. I'm pretty right. good with words. I know a little bit of economics. Maybe I, maybe we can maybe we can come at it from from that direction. So that's my defense. I mean, the the, the there's a handful of professional economists that I can think of who are also really lovely writers and who understand that simplicity is the friend of uh is the friend of understanding um, and that uh, the first job of anyone who sets pen to paper is to reduce as much complexity or, or to relieve ideas of their complexity as quickly and as completely as possible. So that's what, that's, that's what, that's what, uh, that's the invisible force that guides my hand. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you think about it, uh, the, the best understanding of economics uh, really, at least in like the last century or so, has come from people who, you know, weren't really economists to begin with. And um, I know you mentioned him in the book, but off the top of my head, I'm thinking of uh, Henry Hazlitt and, you know, economics for one lesson. Uh, you know, that uh, probably is the best example of uh, of something like that, where you know, the guy was not an economist. I don't even know if he actually even graduated college. Uh, but you know, if, um, other than your book, if, if, if someone were going to come to me and, you know, say, Hey, what's a good, uh, you know, like brief little economics primer, uh, to get for, uh, my kid or, uh, you know, for, for somebody who doesn't know anything about economics, I'd say, you know, that's the book. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I stress, that's very nice of you to say, I, I, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with, Economics in One Lesson. Uh, I love it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit dated. Yeah, I mean, it was 70, written 70 or 80 years, years old. Yeah. Um, I've always, I've been leery um, in discussions of uh, Visible Hand to, you know, it's it's a tough thing to say. Like, I think that my book could be um, useful for teenagers or young people to read before they get sort of infected with some of the worst ideas. Uh, the worst unkillable ideas about economics that are going around because it makes it seem like it's aimed at teenagers or something. And I, that really wasn't my intention. Um, I suppose that, you know, any book that's good for teenagers is good for grownups and vice versa. 
Um, but I would love it if people who uh, are like me, who came to some of this, to, to, who came to some of this stuff a little later in life, would um, would think that this would be a good book to give to a kid to help, uh, you know, help them skip some of the painful uh, mistakes that you could make, right. intellectual mistakes or, or intellectual traps you could fall into when you're in your late teens and early 20s with regard to how the world works generally, but how markets work in particular. Yeah. All right. Um, so then I guess I'll ask you, uh, what is your, um, we hear a lot about what capitalism is uh, you know, uh, and isn't from its, uh, uh, promoters and detractors. Uh, what is your definition of capitalism and is there an actual, uh, quote unquote free market, uh, or free market quote unquote system? Yeah. Well, we, we hear a lot from, uh, about capitalism, but mostly from detractors, right? Uh, I, you know, we don't hear too much from capitalism's proponents. Um, many of them are simply busy doing well in the markets and, uh, don't take the time to, um, shout out to, to capitalism the way they should. And those that do are often kind of do it in a gross and clumsy way. And, and, and it makes you, it repels more people than it attracts. So what is capitalism? My definition of capitalism is that capitalism is what capitalists do. And what capitalists do is they invest and save money and they build things for the purpose of making more money. Uh, it's really as simple as that. Um, <clears throat> capital is, uh, you know, can be financial assets. It can be social assets. We're all familiar with the idea of social capital. Uh, but the idea is to take something and to use it productively so that you can get more of that thing. Um, that's what capitalism is. Uh, it's been very, very good to um, to us. It was very good to my family. Personally, it's been good to our country and it's been good to the world. And uh, it kind of burns me that um, the only uh, the only people you ever hear from are the people who misunderstand capitalism, uh, misunderstand markets, um, because it seems to me that they often misunderstand those things willfully um, with the purpose of uh, pushing a, a kind of a utopian agenda that, that can only cause harm and can only cause pain and has been proven to do so over and over and over again. So capitalism needs defenders. Capitalism needs explainers. Um, the market, I don't think, needs defenders. The market is quite capable of defending itself because my my contention in this book and my contention generally in this life is that the market and the forces of the market are, are not a system. Uh, the free market is not a system uh, because the word system implies – um, cre an act of creation. Something thought out and created, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the market is simply an observable reality, much the same way as uh, gravity is an obser observable, right. observable reality in the uh, physical world. Um, we can understand it and we can measure it and we can systematize it for the purpose of study, but it's not a system in the sense that someone, uh, you know, Adam Smith, for instance, didn't 
invent it mm-hmm. uh, and impose it on the world the way, for instance, some other economic systems have been invented and have been imposed on the world that are thoroughly artificial and which, uh, much like uh, an, you know, an anti-gravity machine, seek to overcome the observable laws of reality. Uh, so, yeah, my, my whole um, approach to this is that the market is real. It cannot be repealed. You can't um, undo it. You can try and then you can suffer the consequences. Um, so capitalists are those who acknowledge reality and work within it to increase, um, increase prosperity for the benefit of all. For the benefit of themselves, certainly, but for the benefit of all, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, uh, markets are uh, basically organic and natural and uh, almost uh, uh, almost come to humans as natural as, you know, breathing or walking uh, bipedally. You know, basically, if you if you recreated Earth like a million times. Uh, pretty much every single time, like markets are going to naturally uh, appear. You know, I mean, that's just yeah. As we say about... in Jersey, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's... something else. It's this. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, uh, come on a little bit. Um, tell everybody about uh, your uh, junior junior high soccer coach. I believe it was your. English uh, teacher, uh, Mr. Seaver. Uh, what was the what was the important uh, life lesson that uh, uh, Mr. Seaver imparted on on you and <laughs> and everybody everybody uh, in your school? So Mr. Seaver uh, was a science teacher. No, excuse me, science teacher. I'm yeah, that's all right. Well, that's a slight slightly important detail because he was kind of a uh, a bluff fellow. I I. Looking back on it, I wonder if perhaps he had been in Vietnam, which a lot of the male teachers uh, in my schools, you know, in the 70s and the 80s would have been of the right age for that. Um, I don't know that may, maybe that makes it sound like I'm going to say that he had some kind of like uh, PTSD or something. But he, he was, a, he was like a, he is yeah. not he was very much not like the kinds of teachers that you see on Twitter and uh, and uh, the libs of TikTok or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so he didn't have days. like purple hair? and. Uh, no, he was yeah. a barrel-chested guy. He had a big voice. He would bark at you in the hallway if he saw you wearing a baseball hat or chewing gum, which I think are two things that are uh, that have uh, that are completely uh, okay now in schools, but that 40 years ago was like, you know, breaking one of the Ten Commandments to do. Uh, so he was a tough guy. And and then uh, one afternoon or one morning, I saw him in the hallway while everyone was getting their stuff out of their lockers and putting their bags away and going to their next class. And he had a little stepladder with him and a little satchel with a bag of and inside the bag was like paints and stencils, paintbrushes and stuff. And he was setting up in the hallway like he was going to do a little art project, which just really was um, at odds with his person, his public personality. Turns out what he was doing was he was stenciling a slogan onto the the wall of the hallway. He must have got permission from the school to do this. Up above the lockers, kind of between the lockers and the and the ceiling, there was a space on the wall, and he was sketching out this slogan. And uh, a little crowd gathered, and people were watching. 
And uh, as it began to take shape, it was clear that it was a kind of an inspirational slogan. I just uh, it didn't it didn't comport with what I expected from him. Uh, what he wrote on the wall was life is not determined by what you want. Life is determined by the choices you make. And, and I don't think I really under, understood the importance of what I was seeing at the time. It took me decades to kind of process it. Um and ultimately to decide that it was uh, one of the smartest things that I'd ever read. <laughs> uh, and it's in a lot of ways, it, it changed my life seeing that. Um, what we learn when we study economics is that we can't have everything we want, that life is about trade-offs. If you want something of value, you're going to have to give up something that you value in order to get it. So economics is essentially the study of choice. It's the science of choice. So at the end, you know, in Mr. Seaver's formulation, um, the choices that we make determine the direction of our lives. Um, there's not really much value in um, trying to dream away the law of supply and demand. You may you may you may want to live in that world. You may wish that you didn't have to deal with the laws of economics. Um but you do, and the choices that you make will ultimately determine whether you have a good life or a bad life, a happy life or an unhappy life. Um, and regardless of whether or not you are uh, financially successful, you can be economically successful uh, so long as you are keyed into this idea that the choices that you make uh, matter. And they'll be informed by your preferences, and they'll be informed by your resources, and they'll be informed by... Uh, whether it's a cold day or a warm day or, uh, you know, uh, whether you're uh, six foot six or five foot five, you know, all of, all of the things of life will enter into the, the decision making process. But uh, if you think that you can just sail through life without making hard choices, uh, without making trade offs. Um, you're, you're in for a real rough time. So I like to thank Mr. Seaver. I'm not I don't have any idea what happened to him after he uh, left that hallway and I left that hallway. Um, I hope that he understands that uh, he made a big impression on a lot of people. All right. Shout out to Mr. Seaver. Um, Not his real name, by the way. Oh, no. All right. Well, uh, to shout out innocent. to the uh, to the unknown Mr. Seaver. Um, he knows who he is. <laughs> He's out there somewhere. Um, all right. Uh, this was actually pretty interesting. Your chapter on prices uh, and uh, and Legos, uh, Lego uh, Lego blocks, the Lego uh, little construction sets that um, I'm sure everyone on Earth uh, knows about at this point. And, and if you're a parent, you have uh, obviously uh, stepped on more than a few on the most vulnerable parts of your bare feet uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, but uh, what what can Legos teach us about uh, about prices? Well, the price is the most important uh, visible sign in a market. Uh, without prices, um, participants in a market, buyers and sellers, uh, would be flying blind. So the price is at the heart of of uh, economics. And it's actually a beautiful sort of subscience of its own, the study of prices, uh, how they're set, and and why they matter. Um, I'm I'm 
kind of in love with it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so Lego, not Legos, Lego. Excuse me. Uh, are a toy that young people like, as you point out. My son is a little older now than when I wrote the chapter because time marches on. But at the time, I was struggling on his behalf to uh, I was struggling to explain to him uh, the the question of why you know a question that mattered a lot to him, which was why the heck are Lego so expensive? Uh, because he wanted to. You know, get, he wanted them. He 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 knew that he wanted Lego and didn't have the money to buy them. And it kind of burned him up a little bit that I had the money to buy them, but I don't particularly want them. I would get them for him as a gift, say. But he was sort of cluing into the idea that there's something a little unfair here, um, in the sense that this price is the obstacle between him and the thing that he really wants. Uh, it seems, you know, through a child's eyes to be um, uh, punitive. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem logical. It seems random. It seems designed to create your unhappiness or to contribute to it rather than to facilitate uh, good feelings. Uh, and a lot of young people never really graduate beyond this uh, understanding of what prices are and what they do. They get trapped in that, that sense of injustice that uh, there are a great many things in this world that we want and that we would like to have, but we can't have them because some greedy man decided to make them too expensive. <laughs> so part of my mission in the book is to, is to uh, relieve people of these immature uh, approaches to economics. So I use Lego as a, just as a sort of a stand-in because it's a it's it's a matter of some moment in my real life uh, to as uh, to, to to explain how prices are set to explain uh, what the Lego Corporation needs to get out of its um, sale of these toys why it why it sells them in the first place and what my son the consumer uh, wants at uh, and how much he wants to give up where those two um, competing sets of priorities meet and come together, you'll find the price of the good. Um, you know, it, the the Lego themselves is not the main thing. Actually, sometimes when I think about it, I think Lego is actually a, was a bad choice <laughs> because um, what economists will always tell you is that if there is a good that you want that's, pri you know, that doesn't, Fit your price range that you know the first thing you're going to do is you're going to substitute another good for that that is in your price range um, and so in a market where you have a lot of goods that are substitutable uh, everybody kind of can get what they want without much trouble lego is a bad example because <laughs> they don't have that many competitors there's a there's one at least one other company that i know of that makes kind of like bad version of lego uh, that nobody wants, um, but there's no direct competitor for Lego. It's a bit of a monopoly in in the molded plastic brick game, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so they have some pricing power. I'll admit this now on your podcast. So they have <laughs> some pricing power that is not accounted for in a simple price model. But I, I, the way I choose to address this is by saying, like, look, you know, you can have a Lego or you can have a Nerf toy or you can have right. like there's there's a lot of substitutes in the toy space sure. for Lego. Um, but you know, this is the kind of economics that I, that I, uh, sort of promised everybody in the introduction that I wasn't going to get too bogged down in because this is, this is ex actually, this is exactly what econ economists tend to do. They'll take this simple example, like, and I'm falling, <laughs> I'm, I'm falling for it myself. I'm, I fell right into the worst trap, which is over complexifying a very simple example. So, uh, I use Lego as a way to explain to my son, um, the concept of the price how, mechanism. How, uh... What is, what does like the average Lego set go for? I mean, is there even like an average Lego set? I I don't know. My my son's only two, so he just turned two, so I have a like a couple of, like he's probably like in that Duplo age now. Uh, mm. but like the actual Lego sets. Uh, All right, so uh, I, I you know I don't I don't have that much information for you except that a couple you know maybe a decade ago or two decades ago, some not that long ago, but between the time when I was a kid. And now, um, Lego made a decision to um, become a fetish property, basically. Become a what? Become a fetish property, basically, for collectors. Ooh, I don't know. The word fetish, uh, I, uh, you threw me off with that. I'm not sure Sorry. what you mean by that. No, I mean <laughs> like, like a, a thing uh, where uh, it's highly desirable among like a, a very – like specific subset of okay. people. No, actually, uh, that may be true. And I think that the world of Lego is kind of big so that there are some uh, Lego sets you can buy that are um, ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like and by ridiculous, I mean into the many thousands of dollars. Uh, and they're like wine or something. You know, they, they do yeah. small bad Lego <laughs> release. Uh, <laughs> but what I was going the point I was going to make is that they've they've gone into branding partnerships with uh, Hollywood studios yeah. and you know um, a recognizable media brands. So you you get all these like Star Wars and and uh, Batman and whatever. I'm making stuff up. Marvel, DC, kind of like uh, tie-in products, mm -hmm. tie-ins, which allows them uh, sort of a, a broader range of of products, not beyond just a simple like you know. Um, the backyard garden Lego right, set, yeah. or uh, mm -hmm. suburban house Lego, which or was like, what I had when I was a kid. Now you can get like, you know, the Dagobah system with like. Uh, oh, you can the, get like the Millennium well, Falcon and all that. Yeah, yeah. well, the Millennium Falcon Death is the Star. one that's like, that's like ten thousand dollars or something. I don't know. Jeez. You, um, and then what they do is then they cut them off, so they they create some artificial scarcity in order to drive up prices, sure. yeah. which drives them up in a secondary market as well. So Lego is actually very interesting economically, um, in terms of the the different cuts you can take at uh, how they sell what they sell and what it all means for markets and consumption possibilities. But you know, are there uh, just is sorry, there like politics behind like? Like Legos, are there like rich Lego fanatics that like try to like corner the market on, on specific uh, like small batch sets, you know, uh, and uh, you know try to get like multiples of sets and, and then and then try to sell them on the secondary market for like even in you know higher prices for, uh, for the people that missed out on the on the short run and that sort of thing. It could be. There could be one would. I mean, now we're I'm way out over my skis here, but um, I would imagine that the 
the real money come it would be in like replacement parts. Mm. So, so like a Mopar got, of, of if you've uh, got a uh, if you've got the set, and then maybe you buy a second one to cannibalize it that you could then sell to people who are missing a one piece in their thing or mm-hmm. uh, who, who, who lost something or, or had some kind of an accident and want to recreate it because they're very fragile um, in, in that sense. Like you can drop them and then sure. It, I have a, fr- I have another friend who has uh, young children. He's to joke with me that when you buy Lego, what you're really paying for is the instruction manual, not the <laughs> bricks, because if you lose the manual, you're kind of toast, you know. So uh, there might be some, there might be some market for those out there where people could really make a few bucks. If I had, yeah. if I Maybe had listened like, to the guy, uh, he told me, there's like underground Simon's that. Uh, uh, yeah, Lego. yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Oh, I have no doubt that there, that, that you can find that. That there are some, uh, you know, geniuses who on their, <laughs> on their lunch break from like hacking Central American. Uh, companies are are you know reverse engineering the Millennium Falcon uh, Lego set you know that's funny yeah I had I I feel for your son uh, I remember having the same deal when I was a kid with there was like this Transformers uh, set so I'm a little younger than you but so I was like a kid in like the or like a small kid in like the the late 80s and there was like a Transformers set it was like this big ass that were like they all combined into uh, one big transformer or something. Anyway, it was like a hundred bucks, like literally like ninety nine ninety nine at Toys R Us when I was you know like five or six or something like that. And I wanted it, and nobody would ever like no one ever got it for me. And it was weird because I was I was the only child and I was like pretty much pretty friggin' spoiled. You know, like I I would eventually get. Like, if there was something I saw that I wanted, like, toy-wise, if it wasn't, like, you know, astronomically insane, like, I probably was going to get it for, like, birthday or Christmas or Easter or something like that. And for just, like, whatever reason, like, my parents would not spend a hundred bucks on, uh, um, you know, on this, this Transformer that I really, really wanted that was, like, the biggest Transformer, um... And, yeah, but and, the good like, news is that you're over it, and that it didn't scar you for life, and you still don't bring it up all yeah, the time. Yeah, it's like I'm I'm almost 40 years old now, and somehow like I keep thinking about that that damn transformer set that <laughs> my parents would never get me. I can't remember the name of it. I remember like what it looks like. It was like gray and red, and everything. But uh, yeah, so I feel for your son uh, on that. Um, it's it's tough. He'll survive. Yeah, I, you get over it, I guess, eventually. <laughs> but I mean, he's probably you know in another. 20 years or so, maybe he'll be on a podcast talking about a book on economics with somebody, and then he'll, you know, bring up the uh, the Lego sets that, <laughs> that that failed to materialize in his childhood. Uh, he got he got more than uh, we have more than enough Lego in this house to uh, to. I mean, he should be satisfied. That's the thing is that um, humans being built the way we are. Um, we're often not satisfied with the things that should satisfy us. Very true. Uh, that's a different, <laughs> that's not just a different podcast. That's probably a different book. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving along. Cause wow, we've already gone almost 50 minutes already. But uh, uh, Let me just, uh, before you move along, I want yeah, to say sure. something about what I just sort of like, um, very mopily alluded to, uh, <laughs> hu- something about human nature and that maybe that's a different book. Uh, one thing that economics really fails at 
um, or let's just call it, you know, um, mainstream economics, classical liberal economics of mm -hmm. the sort that I'm discussing is is, um, you know, what I was just hinting at, this notion that we can be fully satisfied by our, uh, you know, the material options that are available to us. Like economics does not really have a great um, system for or or, uh, or uh, a toolbox for understanding, um, you know, an awful lot of the human experience. Yeah, so filling the hole in your soul. Yeah, it's important, of course, to keep these things in 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 proper perspective. And I do not, you know, uh, some. Uh, so the criticism that you will often get if you're a guy like me and you work where I work is that um, is the opposite. Your, you know, is that is that is that we believe that you know uh, at the Wall Street Journal editorial page we believe that with the right you know with the right tax cut, uh, you know, everyone can be really happy. And that's absolutely a caricature and it's uh, nonsense. Uh, but I just want to note it here because I, I brought this upon myself. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Um, so you have this long chapter, uh, on the, uh, anti-marketeers as you call them. Uh, so, if, but if you're on the right, you're pretty familiar with the anti-market rhetoric that comes from the more progressive left from the Bernie Sanders's of the world and the Elizabeth Warren's of the world. Um, but you read about the threat of the market, uh, that's coming from quote unquote, common good conservatism. Uh, first of all, what is common good conservatism? And in your view, what's wrong with that, uh, the, that view of markets and uh, of government? Well, I call them common good conservatives. They might just as easily be called, you know, national conservatives or populist conservatives. Um, <clears throat> what is common good conservatism? Uh, it is a, uh, well, the way I describe it in the book is it's pro-life socialism. Um, it's, uh, it's probably more complicated than that, but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, um, insult them, uh, the way they have so frequently insulted. Yeah. They're, 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 they're uh, you know, they, they love tossing out the epithets everywhere. Yeah. So, so I, I won't insult them by mangling their philosophy, uh, other than to say that there is, there seems to be. Uh, their philosophy, such as it is, there seems to be, which is kind of my way of insulting people is by doing little asides like that. <laughs> uh, there seems to be a belief that um, kind of the flip side of the tax, you know, just just the right tax cut can make you happy uh, caricature. Uh, th there's a belief that um, just the right mix of family friendly policy incentives and industrial policy and can revive uh, American manufacturing and drive, uh, you know, all the fentanyl out of the land and, uh, restore a sense of communitarian, um, good feeling to, uh, American life. And that would be, you know, restore the sort of the, the primacy of, uh, return us to Eden basically. Yeah. It's a kind of return to Eden. Um, so 
yeah, I think a lot of the, your listeners will be f- somewhat familiar with the characters who are uh, flying this banner. Um, you know, I just reject it for the same reason that I reject Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all utopian promises of a return to Eden. Uh, there is no evidence to suggest that it's possible. And there is absolutely no humility among the uh, people making the argument, um, which indicates to me, you, you know, there's no humility. And by, the, by, by no humility, I mean no humility about the limits of what's possible through policy, what's possible to achieve through policy, mm-hmm. um, which is why a lot of these people uh, are very rightly, I think, um, uh, divorcing themselves from the term conservative because there's you can I, I don't think you can call yourself a con- conservative if your you know um, fundamental uh, if the notion that you're selling is that the power of the state that harnessing the power of the state is the key to national renewal uh, mm. or to national prosperity, um, that's a fundamentally unconservative. Um, outlook. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of them are are removing themselves voluntarily from the conservative movement. Um, I don't even like that term, but, you know, it's the one that's available. Yeah. Um, and, and since since this kind of sorting is happening, we might as well start uh, putting putting labels on things so that we can remember who's who and, and, and who's moving in what direction. So I, I stand for something um uh, which I believe is, as I pointed out at the beginning here or earlier on, is rooted in reality, uh, that has a track record of success, and that reflects the world as it is and, and accepts the world as it is. Right. Um, instead of um, trying to overlay some system or some coat of paint uh, and 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 you know fit the world into some suit of clothes that just that that just won't that just won't work. Um, uh, yeah, 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 it, 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 yeah. I'm with you. It's you know um, the progressives. They want to use uh, the force of government to interfere in the market to do what they think is best for the common good. You know, uh, they have, you know, we'd like to interfere here, 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 and here um, in the market to make things better for, uh, you know, for the American populace and. Uh, and that's basically what the common good conservative saying is we want to use the force of government to interfere with the market, but not, uh, not on A, B, C, D, E, and F, but on, you know, T, U, V, Z, you know, W, X, Y. Yeah. They have a different set of priorities, but the fundamental promise is is the same, which is that, um, that this time we're going to get it right. Yeah. This time is, we know what we're doing. We can fix it. And, you know, yeah. 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 I'm with you. I'm with so you. I'm not down with it, man. So. No, no, me either. I'm with you. All right. Uh, God, we've already gone 50 minutes. There was a lot more I wanted to talk to you about. Um, before we go, I, I, I do, back to Jersey, I do want to uh, let you know I appreciate your uh, shout-out to uh, Crazy Eddie, <laughs> the Crazy yeah, Eddie stores. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's been a while since I thought about Crazy Eddie and uh, – and those wonderful commercials. Uh, uh, yeah. That, so for people, so Crazy Eddie was um, a guy was a store. 
The yes. store was called Crazy Eddie. Yes. It might have been called Crazy Eddie's, but I think it was just called Crazy Eddie. I think the it was just Crazy that, Eddie too, yeah. The same but, way that the store was called The Wiz, mm-hmm. and then it's uh, this was an electronics store in the New York area, a, a chain of electronics stores. It was called The Wiz, and their tagline was, nobody beats The Wiz, mm-hmm. right? Like they got the best prices, nobody beats them. Yep. Then they changed the name of the store to nobody, nobody beats, beats the, Wiz, the, Wiz, yeah. the Wiz. So Crazy Eddie was a store. Um, but it, a chain of stores, electronics, stereos, televisions, that kind of stuff. But the the real um, attraction was the commercials. Uh, there was a guy in the commercial. Jerry Carroll. Who, okay, Dr. Jerry. Was, yeah, Dr. Jerry. Jerry oh, Carroll. Okay, yeah. you know more about it maybe than I do. But <laughs> he, he wasn't really Crazy Eddie, but he was a crazy guy in the commercial, and everybody assumed it was Crazy Eddie. Yes. The real Crazy Eddie was really crazy and ended up going to jail uh, for securities fraud or something. Shocking. But this character, uh, the, the the best part about it was at the very end of the commercial, he would say, come down to Crazy Eddie. We got all this stuff. We got uh, hi-fis and uh, t- boom boxes, tape decks and stuff for your car. And the prices are insane. Yep. And so uh, it was awesome. <laughs> and I wish I wish we could cut to a clip of it right now so that everybody could know because my uh, yeah maybe maybe we'll edit we'll uh, I'll try to get him to edit a crazy eighty commercial into the into the necessary part of the podcast here so people will know what the hell we're talking about. It's a crazy Eddie blowout blitz. Crazy Eddie's not playing with a full deck because he's practically giving away TVs, VCRs, microwave ovens, stereo rack systems, video camcorders, anything and everything in home entertainment, and lots of home appliances, too. Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold, and we mean it. It's a crazy Eddie blowout blitz, and crazy Eddie's going nuts with his lowest sale prices ever. See, crazy Eddie now, his blowout blitz sale prices are insane. Right. So, uh, you know, I just like a little shout out to Crazy Eddie because uh, there's a lot of people out there for whom the idea of prices, uh, as I was saying earlier, is insane. Like they just can't handle it. They don't understand why things have to cost what they cost when the world owes them a living, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, Crazy Eddie uh, or the guy everyone thought was Crazy Eddie was this DJ, uh, Jerry Carroll. He was a DJ, Dr. Jerry. uh, On uh, Do you remember W... WPIX, WFAN now, the, the FM, not the AM660, but the FM station for the fan. Uh, 101.9? 101.9. 101.9. You're saying it was WPIX? It was used to be WPIX, and then it, it was all kinds of different friggin' formats. I remember when I was a kid growing up, WPIX cool was like adult contemporary, that sort of thing. But I think at like one point it was... It was like a rock station, and then it was like a punk and new wave station for like a couple years, uh, yeah. right before I was born. But I think like, when I was in high school, 101.9 was like Kenny G type stuff. Yeah. But I did not know that the call sign was WPIX, because yeah. uh, as everyone knows, WPIX is channel 11, 11 right. on TV, and uh, I would have well, made to that. Watch, where, where you would go to watch uh, Odd Couple reruns and Yankee, yeah, yeah. Yankee games and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, the Yankees used to be on Channel 11, and I'm a little yeah. older than you, so I think they stopped doing this, But uh, and I don't know how much time you have for WPIX <laughs> uh, uh, marginalia. But, uh, Errata. Uh, they used to have this wonderful thing. It was kind of like before uh, when people were playing like in television and Coleco and uh, Atari 2600 games. 
they had a call-in thing in the afternoon on TV uh, on um, like at 3.30 or 4 o'clock. So kids would be home after school watching TV. And you would call in and so, or somebody would call in and they would play a video game like Missile Command or um, some basic kind of video game. And the kid on the phone would have to tell the person on, in the studio when to press the button to shoot the missile to hit the thing. <laughs> And, and but the thing you had to say in order to do it was picks, right? Because W P I X, picks, yeah. Uh, you know they called it picks, I guess. So the kid be sitting there going picks, 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 shooting this missile, and it was always delayed because there was a little bit of a lag between sure. when the kid would say picks and the thing would press the button. And if anybody anybody who grew up in the New York area at about nine, you know, nineteen eighty two. Uh, would be very familiar with uh, what I'm talking about. But anybody who's listening to this in any other part of the country would probably um, like to jump, uh, <laughs> take a, a long walk off a short pier. That's all right. Hearing uh, that. Well, I think people like to hear a uh, little regional. Um, uh, yeah, that, they, they do, actually, because the country has become regional so color. Regional color. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it has. But then um, that's probably... Uh, you know, probably our fault in New York and New Jersey more than anybody else's. Uh, but uh, that's what people from the rest of the country will say. Yeah. But I don't know that it's true. Um, it's not. It's not my fault that um, you know, kids in Sacramento, uh, you know, uh, talk like uh, you know, Run DMC or whatever. It's like that. You know, there there are cultural forces at work that are impossible to to um put 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 into a bottle you know what i mean it's like uh Mm -hmm. the fact that uh new york is located where it is and has the history that it has means that it's necessarily going to be this the the a great engine of of change in this country but um it is a pity that you know even inside of new york you see a lot of uh, homogenization in terms of accents and yeah. uh, um, neighborhoods too. I mean, I just I just remember even when I was a kid, uh, like I said in the you know mid to late '80s when I was like a small child, there was uh, e- you know even in North Jersey, um, there were still a lot of neighborhoods that were uh, like uh, European ethnically um, <laughs> segregated, I guess like. There was like a Polish section of town that had its own uh, church uh, with the Polish priest. They did masses in, in Polish. And then, you know, uh, the Irish side of town, uh, same thing with the, you know, with the, with the Irish Catholic church. And the Italian side of town, they had their own church. And they all had their own different uh, sort of little sections of town with different markets and all that sort of thing. And that's uh, that's like sort of pretty much gone from like everywhere in North Jersey. It seems to me um, uh, like I, I, you know, you just don't really see that. Anymore. Yeah. But the trade-off is you can get, um, you know, butter from the South of France at Costco. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's not all bad. Let's no, just no, say I mean, that, like, uh, like I remember like my, like my great grandmother and grandmother going to like the German butcher, you know, to get meat and <laughs> like this sort of thing, all these different like specialty uh, I mean, you still find Jewish delis everywhere and that sort of thing, but uh, um, you know, like like German butchers or Polish butchers or something like that. Yeah, you know, you don't really see. I don't really see them as much. Well, now I live in South Florida, so I mean, it's totally freaking different. But um, 
I don't know, but I'm, just when I go back home and stuff like that, it's just amazing how much like neighborhoods have transformed just in my you know lifetime. Yeah, well, the country has suburbanized. Um, the culture has homogenized. Mm-hmm. That's obviously you know back in in the 80s, uh, people would have complained about the same thing and would have blamed television or uh, you know um, you know now we sort of. Now we blame globalization and we blame the Internet and we blame social media. Um, but uh, the, the reality is that we live in a in a unique country at a unique time in history where change is the change is the essence of of our lives. It's a ver- it can it, you know, it accelerates and sometimes it you know, it slows down the pace changes, but it's um it's ever present and it'll never, if, if we ever stop changing, we'll probably die, which is, uh, uh, we got about five different podcasts that we could, that we could yeah. layer this one into, um, we wouldn't you know, die. I'm a we'd, big, cer- we'd certainly stagnate. And, well, uh, we certainly would. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in favor of, uh, you know, my first book, which was called zero hour for gen X and was, um, billed as an assault against millennials, like a, a generational assault against millennials was was really actually a secret um, attack a, against internet technology mm-hmm. <laughs> before this was cool. Um, you know, you know, a book is a kind of a snapshot, you know, of of a, of, a, of an author's sort of thinking at a particular time. The thing about a book is that it takes a long time to write, so it's kind of like a uh, what is what do you call that when you open the the aperture on a camera and leave it. It's like a time lapse almost, mm. you know, it, it takes in a lot, but it is still only a snapshot uh, and the world changes very quickly. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, I've, 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 I've been a little bit, um, you know, it's hard to defend some of the things that I wrote in that book because they've both gotten worse <laughs> in terms of how insidious technology has like, addicted us uh and insidiously it's addicted us and and wormed its way into every single uh corner of our lives but it's also you know i'm also seeing a little bit more clearly the the sort of the benefits of um of all this connectedness in a way that i didn't you know five years ago uh so you know but that that dovetails nicely with my main with my thesis invisible hand which is that it's about trade-offs that you can't you can't have everything you want and you're going to have to give something up to get something good and if 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 you know um, let's just say cheap t-shirts that's a bad example but uh, you know um, uh, cheap automobiles or uh, um, electric vehicles uh, you know kind of new products that make life a little easier at the margins or a little more efficient at the margins. Uh, if the, you know, the trade-off is that you don't get to hear like the, the you know, the, the, um, you know, uh, the, that, that, that the neighborhoods of New York are, all seem to be, you know, the same anymore Then you know, maybe that's a price worth paying. Maybe, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. You know, there's a lot of benefits that flow from, um, technological change that uh, it's you know in our own lifetime it's almost impossible to tally the tally the cost or you know to get a clear right. accounting yeah. of whether whether the internet has been a net positive or a net negative and we're never going to know that you know and and in the moment we tend to focus on 
because we're conservative creatures, because humans are creatures of habit, we tend to focus on the downsides of, of change, of technological change. But the, you know, there's not too many people, whether they call themselves common good conservatives or um, woke progressives, that would want to live in, you know, um, Napoleonic France or uh, the Holy Roman Empire or or some of those common God good conservatives. Forbid, are, Russia. Some of those common good conservatives uh, seem like they're really really itching to go back to feudal <laughs> feudal times in yeah, the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's be only because they think that they'll be that they will get to be the philosopher kings. Right. They yeah. They're not going. They're not going to be the the serf. Uh, right. Know, right. So the, the you villain. know this. You see this character pops up in every revolutionary moment, the vanguard of the proletariat, this idea that, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, a certain class of people will will be spared the suffering and it's all be for, you know, the greater good will 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 sort of wrench society through these bloody changes and, and come out on the other end. and It'll be that Eden we've been discussing, but it never works out that way. And, you know, what are we idiots like what, have we? Are, in, in the span of 20 years or 30 years, we've forgotten uh, all the lessons of history. <laughs> it's like, for Pete's sake, just just leave it alone. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of the stuff, economics in general, uh, a lot of stuff to talk, you talk about in the book, which we didn't uh, really get a chance to talk about, uh, you know, rent control and the minimum wage and that sort of stuff. Um, the argument against those to me just seems like so obvious (laughs) so obvious as to almost be uh common sense you know and uh when people when i hear people arguing like in favor of rent control or something like that i'm just like how do you not like what what the hell is going on that you can't see uh how obviously stupid how obviously dumb well, the policy you, this is yeah, you know, know rent control is like there's a great literature on rent control you know like if you if you if you care to seek it out you know it doesn't take that long to to get educated on 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 the unintended consequences of rent control yeah. but uh you know a few months ago maybe mm-hmm. it was 6 months ago a year ago um you know everybody's favorite uh everybody's favorite um european head of state uh viktor orban in hungary instituted you know some kind of like price controls or temporary price controls for what were called being called you know uh essential items uh you know groceries and clothing or something like that mm-hmm. and for about 30 seconds this was greeted with Hosannas by these uh, common good types um, like, yes, yes, this is how you do it. You know, you 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 freeze prices on essentials so that, the <laughs> you know, the family doesn't have to bankrupt itself and choose between, you know, education for the children or, uh, you know, clothes or put food on the table. It's like, yes, finally, somebody gets it. And it was amazing how quickly they got smacked down because for a bunch of really smart guys, that's the stupidest thing that anyone has ever cheerleaded for in my, in my lifetime. Um, price control. Yeah. I mean, it's even, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, it was it last week or a couple, I can't remember whenever, you know, she's talking about, uh, price controls now. And it's, it's just like lady, like I know you have to be, (laughs) <laughs> like I know you're, you're smart enough, you're educated There's, enough yeah. to to know that that this is really stupid. Like 
Well, like, there's I, some ideas that are so stupid only. Uh, like we we know. have. I mean, like in your lifetime, you have, like you lived through an era when we did this, and it uh, was not good. Uh, you know, failed horribly. Everyone pretty much agreed right afterwards that that was bad. And now you're like, yeah, let's give that another shot. Like it's gonna, <laughs> like, like this is gonna work. Uh, this time, I, I just, I, well, this I time, know. this time is different is yeah, the rallying cry of the, uh, of the, you know, history's greatest monsters. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Uh, I, I kept you long. Sorry about that. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll just end it, uh, by asking the question I normally ask everybody that comes on, uh, the podcast, but, uh, uh, what is, what would you like the audience to get out of, get out of this book? What's the. What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? Life isn't determined by what you want. Life is determined by the choices you make. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Seaver. Mr. Seaver. All right. Very good. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, uh, anything else uh, you got going on you want to plug uh, before we go? Any other appearances or social media you know, uh, handles or anything like that you want to? Uh, no. No, I mean I'm easy to find. Anybody wants to find me, um, you know, I'm I'm available to be found. Okay. All right, cool. Oh, uh, before we do go, um, just one thing. The next time you talk to uh, Paul Gigo, uh could you just tell him that uh, I think he does a really, really good job um, picking out his ties uh, when he's on TV. Yeah, I think he has a very strong tie game, and uh, I just want you uh, to, to, to pass that along to him, just to let him know he's got one one fan out there. Of his, uh, I will. Advertise. I will. Uh, in the uh, <laughs> when, when famous chance, words so. of Dmitry Medvedev, I will transmit this information. <laughs> All right. Great. Okay. Uh, well, again, the book is the uh, is Visible Hand: A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. Uh, really, really great uh, little uh, economic primer out there for. Uh, for kids of all ages, not just specifically for kids, but for kids from uh, from ages 1 to 92, I guess, uh, to steal that from uh, Mel Torme. Um, really, really great little book uh, to uh, just, um, yeah, really just uh, to point out the, uh, the common sense, uh, the common sense of the market and the, uh, the beauty of the market, the, uh, as he puts it in the title, the miracle of the market. So I highly recommend it. Uh, for everybody out there, uh, make sure you go out and get a copy of it, give it a, a read for yourself. And uh, so uh, with that, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Mr. Hennessy, I really, really appreciated the talk. Sorry for uh, going off into too many uh, Jersey tangents, but uh, you know, I guess those things are just sort of inevitable. But uh, thank you very much for, uh, for coming. No, thank you. Thanks for it's my, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. Great. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And uh, if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson on heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our uh, Twitter account for uh, for the podcast. You can also uh, reach out to us there, You know, give us a follow, send us a DM, uh, whatever. If you like doing there, uh, our uh, Twitter handle is just at illbooks, so at I-L-L books. Uh, so again, uh, check us out there. And uh, that's it for this time. Thank you much for, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Hello, Robbie. Hello, Mom. Love you both.
バイバイ Masses.